in the world of freedom. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. This is Radio Goethe Magazine with Arndt Peltner. News and information from the heart of Europe. Hello and welcome to Radio Goethe Magazine. I'm Arndt Peltner. In today's program we have an interview with Academy Award winner Florian Henkel von Donnersmark. So stay tuned. But first, the news. Radio Goethe Magazine. The news with Nina Paula. Leipzig. A widening corruption scandal in Saxony has put pressure on Chancellor Angela Merkel's chief of staff and coordinator of German intelligence services, Thomas de Maizière. There are more and more reports that high-ranking Saxon justice and police officials have teamed up with organized crime rings. Child prostitution, large-scale bribery and massive interference in court trials are just some of the things that Saxon state officials are being accused of. Berlin. A simple ceremony in Berlin brought an end to a fund set up to compensate the Nazis' forced labor campaign, under which millions suffered. Close to 4.5 billion euros have been paid out to around 1.7 million victims. Half the money has been put up by the German government. The other half came from companies who benefited from the slave labor during the Third Reich. The fund compensated people all over the world. The largest group were non-Jews in Poland and Ukraine. Oslo. Mikhail Gorbachev has recommended the former German Chancellor Helmut Kohl for Nobel Peace Prize. In a letter to the Nobel Prize Committee, he justified his recommendation by saying that Kohl had played a key role in the peaceful shaping of epochal events. As the last Chancellor of West Germany, Kohl engineered German reunification after the 1989 fall of the Berlin Wall with Gorbachev's help. Kassel. The documenta takes place in Kassel until the end of September. The 12th documenta has three leitmotifs, which are the questions Is modernity our antiquity? What is bare life? And what is to be done? The documenta is regarded as the most important exhibition of contemporary art, drawing attention from all over the world. Berlin. The 25th anniversary of the death of Rainer Werner Fassbinder is overshadowed by a bitter battle over the Fassbinder Foundation. Some former colleagues of the filmmaker demanded that his widow should resign from the foundation and give the left property to the Deutsche Cinematik in Berlin. Fassbinder became a famous director with his films Lili Marlene, Berlin Alexanderplatz and The Marriage of Maria Braun. He died in June 1982 by an overdose of cocaine and sleeping pills. Berlin. The guitar player of Rammstein, Richard Z. Kruspe, releases his first solo album. It's called Emigrate. The first single, My World, comes out in August. On the album will be 11 songs. Berlin. Knut, the world's most famous polar bear, is still the sensation of the Berlin Zoo. Knut is likely to boost the zoo's revenues by 5 million euros by the end of the year. Some 700,000 have come into the zoo to see him since his first public appearance in March. Meanwhile, the little bear celebrity is not that little as he was, with over 30 kilos. I've seen Knut by myself two weeks ago and must say, he's really, really cute and it's worth to wait about an hour to see him for five minutes.
The German movie *The Life of Others* was this year's Academy Award winner for Best Foreign Film. It was Florian Henkel von Donnersmark's first major movie. The film grossed more than 60 million dollars worldwide and was a huge success for the 34-year-old filmmaker. *The Life of Others* tells the story of the observation by the secret police Stasi of an East German theater director under the communist regime. I talked to Florian Henkel von Donnersmark about his movie. Florian, how did you come up with the idea for The Life of Others? Actually, it's one of those things where I can really remember very concretely where the idea came from. It actually uh, came to me in 1997 in my first year at film school in Munich. Uh, I was listening to, uh, to the Moonshine Sonata, the Moonlight Sonata by Beethoven, and remembered this quote from Lenin where he said to his friend Maxim Gorky, Uh, that Beethoven's Appassionata is his favorite piece of music, but he didn't want to listen to it anymore because if he did, it made him want to stroke people's heads and tell them nice, stupid things. And then he said, I, but I have to smash in those heads, bash them in without mercy in order to finish my revolution. And so I thought, wow, you know, that's one of those strange cases where someone is so much at war with his own humanity What if I could find a, a film plot where Lenin would be forced to listen to the Appassionata just as he was getting ready to re getting ready to smash in somebody's head? And while I thought about that, Lenin turned into Ulrich Mühl <laughs> and the Stasi agent, uh, and the Appassionata turned into the beautiful music by Gabriel Yaret, the film's composer. And um, yeah, that was that was the origin of the film. Actually, when when I had that idea, when I had that image of someone sitting in a depressing room with his earphones on his head, listening to beautiful music that he actually isn't wanting to listen to, when I had that, the plot developed in about you know one and a half hours. Uh, the, I mean, that evening, I, I finished the entire plot outline for for the film. You've lived all over the world, but not in East Germany. What brought you back there? Well, I haven't I haven't lived there, but um, both of my parents are from there. Uh, my father is from Silesia, which is now Poland, and my mother is, was born in Magdeburg. They, uh, yeah, my mother came over before the wall was built. Part of her family stayed there, though. Part of my father's family stayed as well. Actually, my father's uh, one of my father's uncles was um, chief of protocol for uh, Erich Honecker's office, <laughs> um, and so. You know, we went to the East quite often, and so I did experience it a little bit, um, and uh, and and you know remembered that there that it wasn't all funny, that there was also an atmosphere of fear, and that uh, you know people were afraid and and did feel under considerable pressure that often they wouldn't even acknowledge to themselves, but of course in a in a totalitarian state where a state can really potentially invade every aspect of your life. You know, and and have total control over you. It doesn't even matter if that power is not exercised so often. It's still there. You know, it's still there. They could use it. You know, and I think that really does change the change the quality of life. Certainly did for my relatives and and, and friends in the East. My father is from Silesia. I had friends living in the GDR, but there's a big step from an interest to making a movie. Well, it was I, I just happened to have that idea, and it was almost a little unfortunate that I had that idea because it meant that I had to spend one and a half years just researching something that I didn't know that much about uh, at the uh, at the beginning. Um, and now, um, you know, I, I think that. Um, 
you know, by now, uh, I I know more about it than <laughs> than probably most mo- you know most people who have who have been subjected to the Stasi because you know I spoke to so many Stasi people and so many especially so many of their victims and um, it just you know I made it my area of expertise. It wasn't that to begin with, but I I, I hope that. I hope that the next film I undertake will be about something that I know more about uh, to start with, because to begin with, because that way I can just cut off, cut at least two years from uh, from the time it takes me to make a movie. <laughs> There are a couple of movies about the GDR, but yours is the first successful in a more serious tone. Why is that? Well, you know, I mean, uh, actually, a few places that I went to for financing for this film said, uh, you know, we really like your screenplay. Why don't you rewrite it into a comedy and we'll finance it? Uh, but, you know, I said, that's not the kind of film I want to make. I mean, there are hopefully funny places in the film and, you know, uh, moments where you can laugh. Uh, you know, always in life when things are tragic, there's also stuff to laugh about. That's just that's just what life is like, isn't it? But um, I I just wanted to tell this story. I You know, no one told Schiller to rewrite uh, Die Räuber as a comedy, you know. So uh, so I said, you know, no, I, I, I want to leave it this way. I, I know exactly how I want the film to be. And, and eventually I did find people who were willing to, you know, go with me on that. After the Third Reich, it took a long time for German filmmakers to touch the time. Your movie, The Life of Others, deals with a dark chapter of East Germany. How did people react when you came up with that film idea? Well, you know, differently. I mean, if, at the beginning, people were very skeptical, especially since um, since I hadn't experienced so much of it firsthand. But, uh, and, so, you know, I talked to many people, and many people were quite open. And the more they saw that I knew about it, the more they became uh, even more open and then when uh the film was was finished um the reaction was really incredibly positive and uh the figures that i respect most in the in the gdr people like wolf biermann or uh, thomas brosig or joachim gauck or vera lengsfeld you know sigma faust Uh, Lutz Rathenow, all these people, you know, came forward and wrote beautiful pieces and articles about the film, saying how much it reflected what they had experienced themselves, and that, of course, was that was very satisfying and and uh, showed me that really, you know, I'd used all the information I'd got from people in the right way because, you know, I would have had, I mean, I'm I'm sure, I would have done something dreadfully wrong if if they hadn't felt that way, but uh, but I was glad to see that that they did feel it. Your movie portrays somehow an elite group of artists in the GDR. Did you talk for your movie to real artists from the GDR, and who were they? Well, um, I mean, they're not the, the artists that kind of I chose are not like the absolute elite. They're, um, they're, you know, he's Nationalpreisträger, you know, winner of the national award, but second class, you know. <laughs> so um, so this is not, you know, Heiner Müller, who would have probably had a first class uh, uh, award. And uh, the theater is not, you know, the um, Volksbühne or um, the uh, Berlin Ensemble, but it's, um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a theater that I, you know, just called Gerhard Hauptmann Bühne because that would have been a likely title for a, for a, uh, for a theater there. 
um, and um, and I shot it in a small theater um, in the west and the outside, and assembled the um, in the inside and assembled the outside from a, from various theaters in the um, in, in in the east. Uh, but, but I mean, some of the people that I that I talked to were, um, you know, were were weren't exactly th that kind of position. Maybe a little a little more famous, a little more successful. One of my main um, advisors was um, Bert Neumann, the the uh, um, sonographer of the uh, Volksbühne, who was uh, you know really he gave me some really very interesting ideas and 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 insights. I mean. I'd, uh, I talked to various writers, but you know, I even even I didn't even have to actually look that far because even the members of my team, you know, Ulrich Müller, for example, was someone who was right in the center of those things. You know, he was a big theater star in the East in exactly that time. He would have been at those parties that uh, that were um, that I'm talking about um, of these kind of figures who were, you know, very well accepted by the government um, and left you know pretty much in peace. They felt. But who afterwards found out, like Ulrich Müller from his files, that he uh, had, um, you know, four members of his theater group at the Deutsches Theater had actually been uh, unofficial employees, informers, spying on him. Uh, and you know, you could go further. Someone like Volkmar Kleiner, you know, was recruited uh, into the. Um, they wanted to recruit him as an official uh, informer, as as a, as EM, and he refused and thought his career was going to be over. It wasn't over, you know. Strangely, someone like Thomas Thieme, who plays the minister, uh, was in, was was even in prison in the East, you know, for, for um, and and was someone who had all kinds of trouble with the system. You know, you don't have to look that far, you know, um, uh, to find. Everybody was involved in the whole thing. I, my my property master, Außenrequisiteur, was in prison for two years with the Stasi. You know, these these people brought in uh, great uh, great expertise. You know, hmm. I tried to even I, actually I also talked, of course, to uh, quite a few writers. Um, I also tried to talk to Wolf Biermann, but um, I couldn't quite get through to him. <laughs> you also talked to Stasi people for this movie. How did they react when they finally watched the film? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, well, you know, my main Stasi advisor was um, Oberstleutnant uh, Wolfgang Schmidt. So that's Oberstleutnant, I think, is Lieutenant Colonel, right? Um, and he was very generous with his time and and uh, experience. <laughs> he was head of the control group of, of Section 20. So he would have been the person who would have read Wiesler's reports first. So this man really knew everything that went on in regards to surveillance of culture and church and all that kind of thing. And he said, you know, I invited him to the premiere <laughs> and he came with his wife and and then wrote me afterwards and said, isn't it strange that the only way you can portray a Stasi officer as a hero in what I admit is an impressive film, is by making him a traitor. <laughs> I thought it was really funny, you know, how, how someone could watch that film, you know, even be impressed by it, but then keep on seeing this character, Wiesler, as a traitor. 
You know, it's weird, isn't it? It's as if you, as if you have some old Nazi watching Schindler's List and saying, you know, uh, this is a good movie, but this Schindler, yeah, what he does, yeah, yeah, impossible. <laughs> he is a traitor, yeah. <laughs> he is not serving the Führer in his plan. <laughs> You know, it's like that a little bit. When, um, when, 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 when this person sees it like that, I, um, I was a little surprised by that. What is the lesson from your movie? Um, because in the end, the one high-ranking minister didn't change a bit. The other one, the trader, is a newspaper delivery man. Not very successful. Well, but you know, I mean, I think at the end of the day, he was successful morally, and I think that's what counts, isn't it? I mean. Well, you know, he uh, he was successful in the sense that he managed to understand that what he'd been doing before then was wrong. And uh, and I think that that's quite a lot. Uh, you know, uh, of course, he still has to be held accountable for what he did before then. And so I think, you know, in, in some ways, it's probably his, his... And I think he would see that the same way. It's in a way his just punishment that uh, he would only be uh, like a... Would only be a guy who, you know, who carries newspapers from from mailbox to mailbox. You know, um, I mean, after all, he has destroyed many existences. There was a there was a Russian uh, journalist, Mikhail, uh, who actually who who asked a, a really interesting question, which uh, which uh, which I think pertains to this as well, where he says, said, you know, at various times this person is referred to as the good man. Now, what do you think that boy that he interrogated at the beginning, do you think he could ever call him a good man? I said, well, you know, probably not. And, you know, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't f try to force him to do that. Um, because, you know, he has done terrible things there. He's destroyed many lives. He's forced this person to betray his friend. You know, all that. Um, Mm. So I think that you know it's it's not the harshest of all punishments that <clears throat> that he's that, that that he doesn't have a really brilliant career, you know. But what is with this other guy, the former minister, who looked still powerful after the reunification? You know that uh, I actually looked through the biographies of of the people who had been in the. I actually had a researcher find out what happened to all the members of the Politburo. Uh, who were members of Politburo at the time of the fall of the wall. And those guys, I can tell you, even those guys, and this was really the most powerful organ, you know, even they fell on their feet. You know, uh, one of them was, uh, you know, a, a management consultant. Another was, uh, you know, a successful author. One was even in the European Parliament. <laughs> um, it, you know, these people uh, have such a, in power instinct in a way that they don't vanish. I mean, look at someone like Gregor Gysi. Come on. I mean, everybody knows what he did. You know, talk to Babel Bolai uh, and hear what she found out from her Stasi files, you know. Uh, but let's say, let's put it like this. Babel Bolai, the woman who fought to have the Stasi files opened, she told, showed me her files and showed me what her lawyer, Gregor Gysi, passed on to a certain ominous organization. Um, and this guy is now head of our far-left party and has one of the most successful law practices in Berlin, you know. He's doing okay, you know. Um, 
some I mean there are many people like that, but I think that you know Wiesler is not one of these people. <laughs> I really enjoyed your movie and I think it was amazing and very realistic how you captured the life there. I was impressed how you got this gray feeling on the big screen. But how did people in the former GDR react? Well, I, we, we did a big tour through the GDR for three weeks. I don't, well, not three, two weeks maybe. Um, Ulrich Mühe, Sebastian Koch and I. And the reaction really was incredibly positive. We had a much better time than, than did Wolfgang Becker with Goodbye Lenin because, you know, also... Um, maybe I learned a little bit from the things that he had to suffer through and really made sure that all the details were right, you know. Um, we had people, you know, researching every, you know, even the shape of a meatball in the East Germany to so it would be made the same way, you know. And people really appreciated that, that we had the right shampoo and... Uh, at one point, there's a light switch which uh, was wrong, and I got uh, I, I got into a lot of trouble for one wrong light switch. But that was it, you know. Uh, all the rest was right, uh, um, and um, uh, we were very. So I mean, all the outside things were right, and also from the feeling and the look and everything, people, you know, after every screening, they said, you know, we cannot believe how you managed to, you know make the GDR happen again, you know, and that it was just exactly what it felt like. And, and um, you know, I think it had to do a lot with the fact that, you know, I think that we really spent a lot of time looking at all the film. you know, first of all, searching in our memories and looking at all the films at the time, looking through all the photo books um, and, uh, and, and then checking things again and again and again and having many people on set making sure that there were no mistakes. And what did they think about the atmosphere in the movie? I mean, the constant presence of the Stasi that you show. No, no, I mean, that's, you know, these were unfortunate. You know, everybody had stories to tell that were like that and far, far worse, you know. It was, it was like that, you know. Of course, there were other things too, you know. Of course, people also had fun uh, um, there, you know. But, uh, you know, it's just like... But but I think it would be wrong to focus only on that, as as many other films have done, you know, uh, especially since it's already been done. How did Americans see your movie, The Life of Others? The reactions could not have been more positive, um, and and I was you know just impressed to see how how people also you know use the film to think about the state of things in America at the moment. You know, uh, it was amazing how how people immediately jumped to. Some people immediately jumped to the conclusion to um, to think about where America could be heading with uh, with the Patriot Act and and uh, uh, and how civil liberties were being were being put at risk by the fact that people can now wiretap phones in the U.S. and monitor overseas conversations. Uh, I, I I I really thought that was quite impressive how quickly people could translate something happening in 1984 in the GDR to 2007 in the U.S. So, you know, I think those people who are willing to read subtitles for two hours, and it's not that exhausting, <laughs> uh, w w you know, should enjoy the film. That was today's Radio Goethe magazine. Please find us online at radiogoethe.org. <laughs>